All right, welcome to the next episode of Grit Rising. Today I have Jonathan Cronstead with me, a good friend of mine that I've known for several years. And uh, one unique thing that I think is going to be fascinating about this this podcast today that I'm excited about is the fact that you are one of the few people that's had a double unicorn exit. Um, so we're going to get into what that means, uh, how he got to where he is, the failures along the way, and kind of... Um, where we are today. So I'm going to start like we do with all every podcast and you'll introduce yourself and we'll get into it. Sounds great. Let's go. Tell me about yourself. Well, number one, I'm really excited to be here. The moment that I heard that you named your podcast Grit Rising, I was like, I totally get it. Because even during Kajabi, Kenny, my partner, everyone would always ask him, what's the difference between successful users of Kajabi and non-successful users? He would only answer grit every single time. Grit is that one quality that if you are talented but don't have grit, you're not going to achieve what you could achieve. Grit is the thing that makes it. So I'm thrilled to actually be on a podcast called Grit Rising. So if you were to look at where I started, born and raised northwest suburbs of Chicago, and really would say it was a, a middle-class upbringing. You know, I, I didn't want for much, but I also didn't have a lot of the things I wanted. So it was unique to be kind of at this Lutheran school private school, but always like I knew who the rich kids were, but I was definitely not that. And then we moved to Southern California and that completely changed my whole world. So show up here at 15, you know, in the Midwest, uh, S class there might as well have been a spaceship, moved to California and S class is like a Newport Beach Honda Accord. They're everywhere. So it's like, okay, how am I going to build life? So high school, water polo, college, go to Concordia University in Irvine because my friend was going there. I didn't really put much thought into my academics. And that really kicked off my career because I started thinking about what is my life going to look like? And my first mentor, who I actually met because I dropped a business card in his Lamborghini Diablo VT Roadster, he basically blew me off. I called him once a week for eight weeks. Finally, the eighth week, he says, if I have lunch with you, will you stop calling me? And I said, yes, I will. Tells me you got to learn to sell. That was my first job, Fletcher Jones Motor Cars, Newport Beach. And that kind of set me off on this career of sales, marketing, executive leadership. But that was really the beginning was it all started with sales. And going all the way back, it came from my parents. You know, my mom and dad were both VP of sales for different companies. They always bet into my entrepreneurial desires, no matter how silly it was, whether it was a lemonade stand or selling pens on a corner or just any hustle that I would be excited about. So I would say my foundation was Midwest Roots, introduced to California and the life that is possible. And sales was my first vehicle that got me anywhere. It's so unique in the fact that sales is what kids are intimidated by today. I was talking the other day about my first real job was a, a paper route. Uh, you know, um, I had a mobile home park just outside of Lido and the mobile home park was good because it was so dense. But the thing about um, having your paper route is one, you had to sell new papers to get a raise. Two, you had to do collections. There's something super powerful about asking somebody for money, collecting, knocking door to door and saying, hey, I, I, I want money for what I just delivered to you. Um, but then today you have kids that come out and I think I told you earlier, I know I told you earlier, you know, my kid won't even ask the neighbor for eggs because that's just this huge intimidating thing. Intimidating thing. What do you think allowed you to go, I'm going to put my business card in a guy's Lamborghini just because I am attracted to his car or being like that. What, what gave you that impetus to do that? So if I were to think about 
how I got there, I would probably have to go back even further. So my dad's boss, when we lived in Chicago, he was this mythic figure. You know, he was the guy that my dad worked for, so he must be a big deal. And I still remember when he got a 96 Porsche Turbo, like this was the guy that I was like, someday, if everything lines up. And so my parents never really had the playbook. Like they, they never told me this is how to get there. But my parents always told me, if you want to get there, you can get there. So there was always this belief of, I can do anything I set my mind to, even if I don't know how I'm going to do it. Like, I can remember being 13 years old, my mom giving me Think and Grow Rich. It's like, probably not a lot of 13 year olds get that book. And even the first time reading it, I didn't really understand some of the concepts. But it was this idea of, okay, well, I'm gonna write down a goal. So, you know, literally got a three by five note card, wrote down a goal, and it started to kind of program my mind of, you just take shots because what's the worst that's gonna happen? You know, you drop a business card in somebody's car, maybe they never call back, maybe they throw it away, maybe nothing comes of it at all. But man, if, if something does, it's almost like you, you have unlimited lottery tickets that you don't have to buy. You just have to at least be willing to play it. Yeah. And if one of them pays off, you know, changes everything. Like, as I look back over my career, as I look back over building Kajabi, as I look back at all of the success I've had, I've had so many people post, you know, our double unicorn raise, how'd you do it? And the only thing I can come up with is, it's the quality of conversations in the inflection points that matter that changes everything. So it's like, when I told my parents when I was, you know, 13, like, hey, I'm going to go pass out flyers in the neighborhood for desktop publishing services because I knew how to use a computer. In that moment, my parents could have said, yeah, whatever, go mow the lawn. But instead, my parents said, no problem, why don't you take a bike to Kinko's, here's the money for the copies, and just cruise around the neighborhood and put them in mailboxes. And it's like, that moment could have changed a whole bunch. Or like, that business card where I maybe had called them only six times, and I never would have gotten a mentor who's been a friend for 23 years for referral for my first job at Fletcher Jones, never would have happened. Or the inflection point of moving into the mortgage business from Fletcher Jones, you know, uh, another fellow YPO friend of ours, Giancarlo Maniacci, I telemarketed the crap out of him to try and get him to buy a car. Finally, he picks up and he's just like, look, I don't know what you make, but I know if you were doing what I was doing, you'd make way more money. And I'm like, dude, I'm in, let's have lunch. And that was my path into the mortgage business. So it's like, you begin to see that these little inflection points of just being willing to ask, just being willing to take a shot, just being willing to endure that momentary embarrassment or ignorance or I'm out of my depth or out of my league, it makes all of the difference. Like it, it's trite, but literally everything you want is like one iteration past where you're comfortable. Do you remember that first goal you wrote down? It was, it was a million dollars. You just wanted a million dollars. I just wanted a million dollars because it was like, if I had a million dollars, that will fix everything in my life. And, and again, going back to Midwest family, you know, money was tight. Like that was the, okay, I wanna help my parents. Like, so if I had that, I could help my parents. And the way that, um, the way that they talk about goals and think and grow rich is it's basically, you're not gonna talk about the how. It's just literally, I have this goal, I'm waiting for it to be delivered to me. And you're gonna read it out loud every day, just programming your mind. Yeah. So it's super simple. And avoiding that self-doubt. I think that um, in sales, I think my dad told me pretty early on, like, if you're good at sales, you will always be employable. Like, you can always get a job in sales. Somebody mm -hmm. could be in 
marketing or they could be in, I don't know, all kinds of jobs. And it's whether or not the market's there. But yeah. if you could sell, you always have a job doing something somewhere. You'll never be broke. You just don't know how rich you'll get. Yeah. Um, but for me, though, I got to tell you, and like the self-doubt thing, I've never gotten beyond it. Never. Like I've only learned to, to work through it. Like I've done a lot of public speaking. Every single stage I get on, whether it's 10 people or 5,000 people, I'm nervous before I go up there. Like even today, being on this podcast, talking about what Kajabi did, how we did it, there's still a part of me that's like, you just got lucky. You know, you're still that kid growing up at the cornfield in the Midwest. Like, you know, maybe you don't really know what you're doing. Maybe you just hit all green lights along the way. Like, yeah. it's never gone away. I just get more and more comfortable with it because the more you just ignore it, the easier it gets to just be like, oh, that's darling. I'm going to keep going. Well, sales, so much about it, at least in my opinion, is being okay with being told no. Mm -hmm. It's a numbers game. I mean, if, if you call on 10 people and one person said yes and you need five sales, well, you got to call on 50 people. But if you call on 10 people and like you said, the first nine people say no and you give up, you, you're, you're out of sales, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that ability to say like, no is okay. And my dad used to always give me this, this quote that he said, people will respect you for what you believe in. So if, as long as you're selling a product that you believe in, then you should be persistent because they'll, they'll ultimately respect it and they'll see through that. Now, there's certainly some people that, that sell the wrong stuff, um, as you see the Bernie Madoffs and, and that sort of thing in the world. Um, but the reality is, is, is some people in sales get a bad rap too, mm -hmm. right? They're like, oh, he's a, he's a salesperson or whatever that is. But the reality is, is you have to be comfortable with being told no. You have to be comfortable with somebody saying you're a salesperson. Well, I think what, what's interesting about your point, let's talk about Madoff for a second, because I think this is interesting. Like, what's unique about sales is to be any good at it, you actually have to be good enough to take advantage of people. Like, mm -hmm. you have to be good enough to move people to a decision. And if who you are doesn't have that moral, ethical, character element of, I'm only going to view things that are going to be good for you or outcomes that are good for you and your family. Like to be talented, you have to have that ability to take it too far. And I think when you look at somebody like a Madoff, incredibly talented, just morally misguided, that, that he didn't have that compass of like, okay, this isn't appropriate. This is wrong. This is stealing. This is all of those things. Yeah. But you almost have to be willing to say, Yes, I'm in the business of influence. Yes, I'm in the business of believing enough in my product that if I believe in it, I have a moral and ethical responsibility to get my product in your hands. Because if you buy somebody else's product, it's not as good, it's not as trusted, it's not gonna do what it should do for you and your family. It's my responsibility to get my product in your hands. Yeah. But you still have to have that moral and ethical compass of like, okay, I know this isn't good for you, I'm just not gonna sell it. And that's, whether it's, politics or sales or anything it's it's kind of the crux of, of what life right you know the best salesperson the best politicians have to be able to self-regulate themselves and go all right yeah i may have the ability to do that just because i have the ability to do that doesn't mean i'm going to go there capitalism in its purest form doesn't work because people can't self-restrain themselves socialism in its purest form doesn't work because the government doesn't have an ability to self-regulate itself. So you see that on and on. It's where's where's this this guide? 
as you go from a salesperson from selling cars to doing mortgage to ultimately becoming a CEO, walk me through, because running a company, specifically a tech company, is far different from being able to raise money, sell mortgages, mm -hmm. sell cars, that sort of thing. Like, what was that transition like and, and how did you make that? Well, like all of the best plans in life, uh, I didn't really know what was happening when it was happening. So selling Mercedes-Benz, selling mortgages, and when I was in the mortgage business, I was thoroughly convinced that I was really smart and I had totally made it. Like, greatest career ever, making a ton of money, and I never knew, you know, I went to my dad. My dad was a nice guy but had not seen those type of economic cycles. He said, well, just live on half of what you make and you'll be fine. Well, he didn't tell me that the market could disappear. My income goes to zero. All of the real estate I financed is now underwater. So I went through a season where all of a sudden I went from believing I was really smart to being bankrupt. And that was that moment where, again, going back to kind of those foundational elements that change, I think, your risk tolerance, my bankruptcy was the greatest gift I ever got. Because going from making a million dollars before I was 25 to being worth negative millions of dollars and going bankrupt, it was an experience where I realized, number one, I better get some humility. Because if I was humble enough to ask people or I was humble enough to recognize that I might have been lucky and good, not just good, I probably could have avoided that calamity. But it was also something that helped me recognize that the bottom is not as scary as you think. That you know, the moment you're experiencing success, I think all of us freak out about what's going to happen if I don't have it or what's going to happen if it all goes away. When you experience it all going away, it's not fun, but it's not nearly as scary as you thought it would be. So it was one of those things where I guess getting a little bit more comfortable with what the bottom looked like, it gave me a lot more freedom to take more risks in the next season of my career. So coming out of the mortgage business, file bankruptcy, everything goes back to the bank. Uh, even, you know, had bought my parents a house that I then had to help them move out of because that was part of my bankruptcy, which was, you know, not a fun story, but nonetheless, it sort of led me to say, okay, what did I learn? What am I going to do next? And that's where the serendipity comes in of, I didn't necessarily know the path. I just knew that I wasn't going to stay down after getting knocked down. So end up learning about this guy named Dan Kennedy, who's a direct response marketer. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to learn about marketing. So I buy all of these marketing products, start learning about marketing, meet a guy named Joe Polish, who was on one of Dan Kennedy's products. Joe uh, now runs Genius Network, a huge think tank for entrepreneurs in Phoenix. And I called his office and said, hey, Joe, uh, I want to learn how to be an info marketer. Will you train me? He said, yep, um, I'm $25,000 a day for consulting. I said, well, I'm bankrupt, so I'll give you $500 for five minutes. And if you don't want to be my friend, that's okay. So again, first, business card in a Lamborghini. Second, $500 for five minutes. Joe basically says, you know what? I'm happy to mentor you. Why don't you just move out to Arizona? So he had a one-bedroom apartment that he built off of his office. I lived there for three months. Followed him around like a lost puppy dog, literally hand copying sales letters, telemarketing, anything I could just to learn all of this direct response marketing. Then hired out of GKIC to be CEO of a company called Digital Marketer. And that was my first CEO title. So Digital Marketer was a company that I had bought products from. They teach online marketing, had a couple of technology platforms to go along with it. And so that was my first experience as CEO. Then was CEO of a multi-level marketing company after that for two years. Then as a GM of Success Academy, which was the course element of Success Magazine. And then Kajabi after that. And Kenny and I met as friends and I was consulting for him 
just before I started at Digital Marketer. This episode is brought to you by Entrepreneur Magazine and Entrepreneur.com, the one place to go if you want to start, build, and grow your business. When you went to be CEO, you were placed in that role because you were a great salesperson or they were thinking you're a great salesperson that knows how to run a company as well? It would have been both. So I was hired into the role right after a very unique inflection point in the company. And this is one that, you know, for anybody listening, I would say that the first time you're going to get the shot, accept the fact that you're getting the shot because some shit's broken. Like you're not being brought in as the CEO of a perfect company and it's going to be nothing but champagne and velvet ropes and all kinds of fun. My experience was I came into a company that had just taken on a new partner. So originally it was Ryan Dice and Perry Belcher. Roland Frazier was joining as the third principal. And Roland was coming in after the company had been through a, a very difficult management transition. They had hired a CEO. The CEO came in and kind of did some things and drove a truck through the organization. And they were now like kind of reinventing the organization from a bit of a challenged space. And so I would say for me, I was more of a revenue focused CEO. It was okay. I know the pro promotional partners we need. I know the campaigns we need to run. I know the people we need to run them. Let's go. And so I think that as you look at CEO personalities, some CEOs come up through the lens of operations and finance. Some come up through the lens of revenue and sales. In SaaS, some of them come through the product lane. So you're always going to have a CEO that was something else before they were that. And for me, it was always a very revenue-focused CEO. So you come through the organization when a truck just got ran through it. You just said, we're going to sell our way out of it, or you said... I'm going to fix the culture. I'm going to fix the operations. Was it, was it, cause, cause I've done both personally, mm -hmm. even like there's times where I'm like, things are bad. Let's sell our way out of this. And then there's things where you look around and you're like, all right, there's, there's organizational issues here. What was kind of your first thing that you did? For us, it was both. So we didn't necessarily have the luxury of deciding to walk or chew gum. We had to do them both at the same time. Um, the culture part was going to take a longer time. So I think we focused initially on, okay, what are the promos that are working? How do we double down on those? So one of the programs that we had that was doing extremely well was a, a program at the time called Number One Book System. It was about basically publishing on Kindle, building a business around publishing. So that was an offer that we really scaled the crap out of to keep the company you know, continually doing well during that season. And the cultural stuff took place in tandem, but it needed to take place um, over a longer period of time because cultural change is always difficult. So we did a bunch of different exercises, one of them straight out of Tony Shea's book. Uh, we basically took the whole company through essentially an optional layoff. We literally gave everybody a check for one month of compensation and said, hey, good news, you all get a month of severance. Better news, if you really want to be a part of something and you really want to be excited about reinventing this company, come back on Monday, give us the check, with a letter about why you're excited to be here. And if we don't see you on Monday, cash the check and thanks for playing. How many showed up? Uh, I would probably say about 85%. We did with, with letters. Yep. Didn't have as many, like, it was one of those moments too where I was afraid that everybody was just going to go. I was afraid that everybody was just going to be like, this is too hard, it's too complicated, I'm out. But we actually got a lot of people and quite frankly, it gave a lot of people the ability to talk about their vision for what their role or what the company could be. Like it gave everybody the opportunity to say, 
all right, you guys admitted some stuff's broken. Well, cool. Let me tell you how I think I can fix it. How much of what those people wrote down on that paper did you guys ultimately use to reboot? The vast majority of it. Because what was wild is thematically how similar the challenges were. And the challenges were ultimately communication. It really was all it was. Like it, it literally boiled down to people didn't feel like they knew what the target was. They didn't feel like they knew what they needed to hit the target. And they didn't feel like they knew who they could ask for help for when they were trying to hit the target and it wasn't going their way. But I would say if you were to distill down all of it, all of it came down to communication. It's impressive that you guys did that and you pulled it off. When you went to run Kajabi, however many years later, mm -hmm. how much of that same mentality did you use to, to, to then grow that to the next level? So Kajabi was a very different journey. So as president of Kajabi, and it would have been September of 2016 that I joined as president of Kajabi, the way that Kajabi happened was, let's go back to um, before Digital Marketer. I get a call and says, hey, you're in Orange County. Kenny's in Orange County. He's doing some cool stuff. You should meet him. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, I'm here. Why not? And so meet Kenny. And this is about six to eight months after the original launch of Kajabi. And they, you know, Kenny was like, hey, really need some help with our marketing and sales. Awesome. Love to do some consulting for you. Let's put some campaigns together. Let's have some fun. So consult for six months. Kenny fires me to work with a shinier consultant at the time. And I said, all good, man, let's stay friends. So we did, stayed friends. Two years later, hires me back as VP of biz dev, which lasted all of seven days because then the offer came through for CEO of Digital Marketer. And I was like, man, I, I gotta take this. So I took Kenny to the same coffee shop he fired me at and I quit. He laughed and said, all right, you know, I fired you, you quit, we're even now. And the friendship continued. And that was probably five years of, of friendship and those two iterations of my Kajabi journey. And then I was renting an office from Kajabi while I was working for Success Magazine out of Dallas. Come in on Monday, Kenny walks into my office, says, hey man, how's life? I said, well, Success wants me to move to Dallas. I always told my wife, you know, I'm not gonna ask you to move from Southern California. So clearly I'm uh, not going to Dallas. I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do next. And Kenny laughed and he said, well, you've grown, we've grown why don't we figure something out? Because I really think this thing can go to the moon. I need somebody to help me do it. And it'll be a lot easier than moving your shit out of the office. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So the Kajabi journey was one where I didn't have to come in and fix anything. Like Kajabi, when I joined, was 6 million in ARR, 25 team members. And when Kenny and I stepped out of operations, it was now north of 100 million in ARR and 400 team members and a $2 billion valuation. So Kajabi was not a this needs fixing. Kajabi was a, this has been a lifestyle business and Kenny knew that it could be a real enterprise and it needed to change the culture from the standpoint of we're not doing anything wrong. We've just got to massively amplify what we're doing. So the culture coming in was very lifestyle oriented, like, you know, a bootstrap profitable software company with no institutional capital. I mean, every time Call of Duty came out with a new game, productivity would shut down for anywhere from 30 to 90 days at the office because it was just like, oh no, you know, there's zombies now. We got to play that. So it was kind of helping everyone understand that there's a real opportunity here, that we're looking at an industry that someday a book will be written about how this idea of knowledge commerce changed the way people learn. And that book's either gonna be about us 
or we're going to be that footnote in the book of, yeah, there was this darling little, little company that started something and then somebody won and now owns that industry. Like you look at, you know, Salesforce, they started software as a service and largely still own the idea of software as a service. And then you look at a company like Jawbone, they invented the first fitness wearable, the Jawbone Up. They invented the first wireless Bluetooth speaker and they invented the first Bluetooth headset but yet they own none of those categories. You know, largely I'd say Apple AirPods probably owns the Bluetooth headset. That's all yeah. them. Wireless Bluetooth speaker. I mean, everyone and their mother now has one of those and fitness wearables. It's probably either your Aura Ring, your Whoop or your Fitbit and Jawbone's nowhere near. So it was very much understanding that there was an inflection point that if we didn't win, somebody else was going to. Your biggest contribution to Kajabi in the beginning. You come in as a sales marketing guy. Um, it clearly needs gas thrown on the fire. Um, what was your biggest contribution in the early years? So I would say the biggest contributions were making marketing and sales a priority. That, you know, there's two categories of entrepreneurs in our universe. There are marketers that build software and there are software engineers that learn how to market. Kajabi was the latter. We had an unbelievable product, unbelievable technology, but there was no sales and marketing whatsoever. So ramped up sales and marketing like crazy, but what also was probably one of the largest inflection points in the company was us launching the Kajabi Hero program. So Napoleon Bonaparte had a quote that said, you know, my life is a general changed when I realized men would die for a blue ribbon. To me, although that's a bit stark, it really adequately describes the role that recognition plays and helping recognize people that typically don't get any accolades. So if you think of online entrepreneurship, it's the loneliest thing in the world. You're literally talking about you and a screen accessing the rest of the universe, but all your friends and family are like, well, nobody makes any money online or well, what do you have to teach anybody? Or why would you create a course? Or why would you do any of that? And so we were like, well, you know, let's create a recognition program to just put our arm around them and say, hey, you're doing something really cool and it is real and there are other people doing this thing and it's gonna be awesome. So to Kenny's credit, he came up with the term Kajabi Hero and then we then built this recognition program around this idea. So the first thing was, if you sold $1,000 on the platform, we sent you a t-shirt and the t-shirt was just hashtag Kajabi Hero, grab a photo, put it on your Twitter, take a selfie, post it on your Facebook. And then that developed into a tiered recognition program that now has probably a dozen or more different levels of ways we show up for you in the mail saying, great job, we're rooting for you, let's go. And that was really, really cool because it began to shift the culture of the team from, well, we just build this thing so that we're comfortable and has an easy job to now, oh my gosh, we are change agents in these people's lives. Like we're now providing kids college funds and vacations that wouldn't have been taken and you know grocery bills that might not have gotten paid. So it created this urgency and this customer centricity around why we do what we do. And then what really amplified that was our partner program. So we sort of call it perpetual promotion or revenue, uh, recognition driven revenue. It's this idea of we're gonna recognize you on our Kajabi Hero program. We're then going to talk to you about our Kajabi Partner Program, which is basically, hey, you're doing some really cool stuff. And everybody that's taking your course probably has something that they could teach as well. Why don't you tell them you're doing it on Kajabi and we'd love to pay you for doing it. So we then have this partner program that now adds a significant revenue stream for our users. 
which allows them to then get recognized again, which allows them to then promote us more. So it became this very symbiotic relationship that became our largest organic acquisition channel because you had people being recognized. And then that recognition gave people the media and opportunity to tell others, hey, check it out. Kajabi just sent me a t-shirt. You know, if you'd ever like to teach something online, go check it out. Yeah. And it really, I mean, it blew up. From the standpoint of that original vision letter at Digital Marketers to the Hero program, which I think you said Kenny created. Um, he named it. And named it. Yes. Um, the the theme in terms of that is, is engagement, right? Um, if you're talking to any business, whether it's a service business, a SaaS business, um, manufacturing, talk about engagement and then how you would amplify that from a sales and marketing standpoint. Because that, that's your specialty, right? Totally. Is, is the sales and marketing side. And then there's this engagement that even as we talk about work from home, mm -hmm. we talk about a hybrid. Um, we have now employees in different states that we never had. I think engagement is is so critical. Um, so just touch a little bit about on what you learned and what you think is like the, the biggest takeaway an entrepreneur would listen to this and go, yeah. So let's talk about purpose and let's talk about how I view purpose and how purpose can be applied to create all of those types of things within an organization you want. So I split purpose into internal and external purpose. Internal purpose, I believe, is necessary because I think far too many people don't give themselves permission as entrepreneurs or business owners to be selfish in this category. They feel like they have to find some flowery, socially acceptable internal purpose that if they don't nail it, they can't talk about it. They have to be embarrassed about it. Like we live in a world today where an entrepreneur just saying, I'm in business to get rich. Most people are afraid to say that because it's like, well, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to trigger anybody. I don't want to, you know, it's like, so that internal purpose is yours. That is your fuel. It is why you do what you do. And it doesn't need to show up in a mission statement. It doesn't need to be broadcast to the company and you don't need to get anybody else on board with it. This is just the thing that when it gets tough, this is why you're going to keep going. Mm -hmm. So that internal purpose for whoever is driving the organization, absolutely critical. The external purpose is one that I believe should be 100% about the customer that I don't believe this should be around a team dynamic. I don't believe it should be around work-life balance. I don't believe it should be around in-office you know, environments. This is entirely why you do what you do for whom you do it for. That's it. It is purely the customer transformation and that's all that matters. So the real question is now, okay, well we've defined why the entrepreneur does what they do and we've defined why your customers should give a shit about what you do and engage with you. What about your internal team? This is the one that I have a lot of religion around because I believe that, and the concept of mission, vision, values for organizational communication, I think dates back into the 40s or 50s. So it's pretty dated. And when you look at every company imaginable, good, bad, or otherwise, they all have mission, vision, values. So if we're dealing with quiet quitting, the great resignation, if we're dealing with the most disengaged workforce we've ever had, the answer can't be mission, vision, values because everybody has that. So to me, the answer is using purpose as a magnet, as a dog whistle, as a tool to attract team members that like why you do what you do and who you do it for. 
So I'm not putting out emission vision values about our workplace culture because ultimately that's going to speak for itself the moment you're working there. But I'm going to put out a whole bunch about why we do what we do for our customers and I'm going to let people identify if that's important to them or not. And you really begin to see that happen where we've all tried every quick hit, every carrot and stick, every everything to get people to want to do something. I've come to the place where I don't believe that if they don't want to do it, they're not going to want to do it no matter how motivated you try to make them. Oh, yeah. I think um, we talk about the want and the carrot and the stick so much. But at one point, great organizations have a certain level of accountability. Um, and you see it time and time again on just like the lifestyle versus those brands that go to the next level. And accountability is tough because you're calling out somebody for not doing their job or you're you're putting it into your culture. For us, it's one of our four pillars of success is accountability and we have to own it. Um, as you're growing that fast as you were doing that and all of a sudden Call of Duty comes out and you guys have something that you need to continue to go um, and they're thinking work-life balance, they're thinking Call of Duty, that they're, them being that employee. How do you create that accountability without losing the purpose, the vision, uh, and, and the momentum that you have going. Because all of a sudden you're saying, hey guys, I know this is the way we used to do things, but we we have lightning in a bottle right now. we we got to go. And that requires accountability. And that's not an easy... How did you overcome that? So I would say for us, it was a relentless focus on understanding that people are important, but people drive systems. And those people will only be as capable, as happy, and as accountable as the systems allow them to be. And I think this is another area where I'm, I'm writing a book right now, and please don't ask me when it'll come out because it's embarrassingly behind. But the idea from this book is I believe that the people portion of businesses is looked at backwards, that everybody is focused on only hiring top talent and only getting A players. And most of the time, they're focused on top talent or A players because they're kind of hoping that that A player is going to come in and fix this dumpster fire in whatever the system is that's not functioning. And the reality of it is it's flawed because A players don't want to come fix a dumpster fire. A players don't want to hop aboard a sinking ship. A players want to be around other A players and do their absolute best work and shine. And the only way they can do that is they're only going to shine as brightly as the stage that you put them on. So I think for me, before I ever hold someone accountable, I'm the first one accountable because I created the system that is driving whatever result or circumstance I'm currently experiencing. So the first place I'm going to look is, how is this system performing? And if I can look at that system and say, man, if you put me in that role, I'm accountable, I own it, and I can deliver it, then it's a people problem. Then it's a, look, I'm sorry, you have everything you need, you know the job, you either can do the job or we gotta find somebody that can. Nothing personal. The business needs the job done, you're not doing it. On the flip side, if the system is broken, all I'm going to do is blow up good people by holding them accountable to a result that they might not be accountable for how that result gets achieved. And I think for me, that's what creates that organizational strife of you own this. And they're like, oh, well, but here's the eight reasons why I can't actually do that. Well, whatever, it's your, it's your KPI, do it. Yeah, you know, um, I think that the, my business grew fast, but not nearly fast enough compared to where it is today. And I think so much of that was, to your point, 
that you talked about, which is good people want to be around good people. I used to think, oh, there's this cancer in the organization or this low performer. As long as they're not hurting us, then we're okay. And what I started to find out is I started to lose really good people. And on their exit interviews, or you know, it was always good relationship that I had with them. And, and But they would say, like, I just don't know if you want to go as fast as you talk about going because you allow that person over there to do that thing and they repeat it and you don't fire them, you don't do anything. And and I realize that it takes a great performer and it gives them a little bit of the case of the fuck it's, which is fuck it, if you're not gonna hold them accountable, why are you gonna hold me accountable and why am I gonna do this? And um, that was a big lesson for me of, of getting rid of those low performers earlier on, taking more of a pragmatic approach to who we hire, not filling a spot. You know, we started to build out a bench before we even build a spot because we knew in the back of our minds, if we had a low performer, um, we didn't want to get rid of them because we didn't know who was going to replace them. If we had somebody that was on the bench that we thought was really good or somebody that we had been interviewing that we thought was really good, it made us more ready to get rid of that, that person sooner. And then the second point you made that I love is I always think that accountability comes from the top. Uh, we had a, um, a a provider of ours that was terrible, and I couldn't get a response out of their team. Couldn't get out of the response out of their team, and I went on LinkedIn to this guy in Wisconsin. I found him. He's the CEO of this company called Task. Um, I don't even mind calling him out. And we had we were like the, one of their largest like distributors. And I'm like, who can I talk to about this problem? Please, I beg of you to just give me somebody to fix this problem. I have clients that are stressed out right now. And his response on LinkedIn was, "Hey, um, I don't, I don't know why you reached out to me on LinkedIn. Call the eight hundred number. I don't, I don't respond to things like this." And I thought that day I sent the, his response. It was longer than that, but it was awful. I sent the whole team. I said, "We'll never act like that. Like, like there's no account. He's not even holding himself accountable. He, he, he's too big for his own britches, and he's saying." call our 800 number and I'm one of their largest sales things. And so I think that accountability comes to the top. We always have to look within ourselves and go, are we holding ourselves accountable? Are we putting in the right process? Are we putting in the right you know, systems for them to work, to be accountable? It's still hard though when you put all those things in and you're like, execute, and they're not executing. Well, and I think that's one of those things too that like, if, and I mean, bear in mind, you know, was president of an online software company powering all of these digital influencers and whatever else. One of the things that I have the hardest time with, especially with younger up and coming executives today, they've drank at this fire hose of everybody's highlight reel, but they never see the cutting room floor. Like, it's like, why am I not successful yet? Why am I not a CEO already? Why am I not making six figures? Why, why don't I have the car and the houses and whatever else? And it's like, it's hard. Like, it gets so easy once you accept that it's hard. Like, they call it work for a reason, which is why you gotta pick something you want to do because you're entitled to choosing your labors. You might not be entitled to the fruits of your labors. Like my little brother, he's you know 10 years younger than me, supply officer in the Navy. He's watched my Kajabi journey and he's like, I wanna be an entrepreneur. And I was like, cool, I wanna help you in any way that I can. But I need you to know that you could do everything I did the way I did it and your result might not look the same. Now I can tell you your result will be awesome because it's a much better vehicle to be in with much greater returns regardless. But don't judge it based on 
my highlight reel. Don't judge it based on the, you know, family parties that you came to that were super cool and over the top. Like, you weren't there when our app went down and it's 12.45 at night and I'm responding personally to Facebook comments and my wife is like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, well, there's people around the world right now that can't sell their info products and it's my problem. Yeah. And she's like, oh, okay, I get it, you know. Good luck, do you want me to make you coffee? Like, seeing those moments, I think to me that's where that authenticity as a leader is so critical because you're entirely right. Like, you get a response like that from a CEO, you can imagine how checked out that guy is in every organizational meeting that demands something from him that's gonna make him late for his golf game. Like, he's a guy that clearly shouldn't be running a company because he doesn't care. Yeah. He doesn't give a shit. He probably has a great resume or he was a great sales guy or operator at one point, but now he's CEO and he's he's checked out. And that, that's a pretty... Well, and, I mean, in today, authenticity is the new currency. Like, that's the, the good news about what's happening, is if I think about when you and I were growing up, I can remember getting my first 486-75DX IBM computer, and AOL was the only internet. And I can remember not having a cell phone. I can remember riding my bike until the streetlights came on and coming home. Like, I can remember what life was like before the internet. Today, somebody growing up saying, I want more, there has never been an easier time. There have never been lower barriers to technology. There have never been more free information, free mentorship, free topics. Like you can learn anything today, but it's going to prompt a new class of leaders that I think are required to be far, far more authentic, far more accessible. Like you can say, I'm not gonna respond on LinkedIn. Well, if you're not talking about your company, your customers sure are going to. Yeah. You know, the people that are power users of your platform are going to reach out to you because you better be at least accessible. This is important. It's a, it's a new it's a new day. In this journey, you made mistakes. Countless. What do you think your biggest mistake is besides I I mean obviously I think you're going to you probably mean, talk other than like not working out, putting on a bunch of weight, drinking too much, like uh, outside of those? Well, you can go down that path too. <laughs> um because you can I was in shape at one point in my life. You can't buy your health and you can't buy um you know your family and so those are two really critical things. But what what do you think your biggest mistake in your career was? My biggest mistake in my career was not recognizing the areas of my inner game that were holding me back. So I grew up in a family that my parents were probably well-intentioned, but I grew up with a very unhealthy need for approval. I needed to be liked. And if you need to be liked as a leader, it is going to make management and leadership the worst possible career choice on the planet. And for me, the early stages of my executive career, I fell victim to that over and over and over and over. Couldn't hold people accountable because I was afraid they wouldn't like me. Couldn't hold people to task because I would just feel like I should do it for them because if they couldn't do it, it was probably a failure on me. And it didn't actually hit me that this was my issue until I was working with a coach named Jim Fortin, unbelievable mindset guy. And he takes me through this exercise and he's like, well, you know, Jake, let me ask you a question. Like, how will you ever know if somebody likes you? And so I list off all the standard ways of this is how I'll know somebody likes me. He goes, well, what if the person's just a really great actor and is faking all of it? And I was like, well, but I'd know this, 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 and this. And he's like, no, you probably wouldn't. Like, what if, what if they're faking all of that too? And so the TLDR on the exercise is, I'll never know if somebody actually likes me. 
And I'll also never know how much somebody needs to like me for the relationship to be effective to move towards an outcome. So why am I wasting my time and diluting my effectiveness on factors I can't measure and on factors I can't manage? And it all of a sudden was like seeing the matrix. Like it, it took out all of this, I've gotta be liked and I've gotta be cheered for and I've gotta be that. And it turned it into all that matters is the outcome we've all agreed we're going to achieve. And that's where it all stops. And so for me, the, the need for approval was a huge Achilles heel. What, what part of that, your career did that happen in? So I would say it was, the, it was the program running in the background that I was unaware of until probably halfway through Kajabi. Like I, I would say I carried it with me right up until I was 38. And from an outcome standpoint, when you recognize that, how much do you think that changed? Because running a business, running a family, whether we're a mom at home or we're a, a CEO or we're somebody that's, you know, marketing podcasts, um, we all have blind spots. And when we get through those blind spots, some, some of them happen right away, some of them happen over time. But that blind spot that you knew or you didn't know, maybe you even knew it, but you didn't want to address it. How much did that change the game for you? For me, it changed everything because it was a foundational shift in I would approach everything like it was a people problem. That this person wasn't doing their job or wasn't achieving the objective because maybe they didn't like me, maybe they didn't like the company, maybe they didn't like the way I was managing them or communicating with them. It was always, what am I doing wrong in this situation? And it moved it to being an outcome conversation. Well, this is the outcome we have to achieve. Is this person capable of doing it? And their feelings about me are irrelevant. Because we both agreed this is the outcome. We both agreed on the terms and timeline. Why isn't it happening? Yeah. It's when you look at our current environment, we have an environment that, um, either rewards the highlight reel like you talked about. Like, for example, when I started posting the reels, the viewership of the entire podcast went down. People would come to me and they'd say, oh, I've been watching your podcast, they're great. I'm like, oh, which one did you listen to? And they'll say that, and I was like, oh, okay. And I realized that all they did was watch the reel, and in their mind, they, they watched the, the entire podcast. Um, but you have highlights, and then on the other side, you have the the world of wokeness, which is I'm going to tell you all of my problems, why I can't be successful, where, what happened to me when I was in third grade and what happened to me when I was in sixth grade and all those things. And as we talk about grit um, and f being able to be vulnerable with what your blind spots are, but at the same time, understanding that those don't stop, those are blind spots that you can work through versus, hey, here's my problems, the whole world should know and feel bad for me. As a CEO of a company, you see a blind spot and you're like, all right, I got this this next path that I want to take or a mom at home or whatever. What's your recommendation on the approach there of going, how do I, how do I approach this? Because so many people want to either broadcast it to the world and tell you why they're, they're failing or they don't want anybody to know what their blind spot, they don't even want to know their blind spot. They just want highlight reels. Hey, I'm on this vacation and I'm wearing this bathing suit and you know, you're all working and I'm doing this. Um, kind of 
give me your thoughts on today's society and breaking through versus the AOL where we don't mm. see all that crap. We don't have everything. So this is a topic I love talking about because to me, and there's a lot of different ways you can phrase this, um, whether it's, you know, you can tell the sun is setting on a society where very small people cast very long shadows. Like we live in a universe today where people are being programmed that brilliance is delivered in 30 second reels that you cycle through so quickly that you're not even processing what you just heard. It, it's something that I think will have an incredible tale that I don't know how we're gonna get beyond because when you think back in the 1900s that Shakespeare was on a fourth grade curriculum and today half the people graduating can't even read at the level they're graduating at, we have some major intellectual capital and brain focus hurdles that as a society, I don't necessarily know how we're gonna get beyond. It's gonna be a little bit weird when you have a CEO of a company that tries to manage everybody and achieve goals through Snapchat alone. I don't know how that's gonna happen. So I think the programming that's happening and you're watching our attention span get shorter and shorter and shorter. Microsoft funded a study where we now actually have a lower attention span and capability of focus than a goldfish. A goldfish can actually focus for eight seconds and we don't even hit that anymore. So I think that part of it's very problematic. But when I think about managing an organization, being a mom at home, and looking at how am I going to manage this person or this task, I think you have to very much separate the person and the task. That, uh, and I think Dr. Julie Gerner said this best, but it's engage empathetically, challenge directly, that I like you as a person. Trent, you are unique, you are special, you are a wonderful human being on your own journey that I can understand as much of as I can as your boss. However, our customers have this need, and this need and this outcome have nothing to do with you but this need is currently your responsibility. Mm -hmm. You can either do it or you can't. And if you can't, as much as I love you and as much as I think you're a wonderful human being, this still needs to get done. And I've got to find somebody that can. So I want you to be you. I want you to have your experience. But I can't control any of the outcome other than this outcome has to happen. And if you can't do it, somebody has to. And that gets back that accountability. It's creating that accountability and being confident. But, but again, I think that accountability thing is so important because it's accountability to the task, not accountability to a mold of who you have to be. Yeah. That, that I'm, not, I'm not holding you accountable to qualitative elements that you may feel are not yours or not authentic. But I am holding you to this. And if we can't agree on this, then, you know, we got no business doing anything. Yeah. We always end every podcast with you get to ask me whatever question you want. Okay. What do you got for me? What keeps you going? And the reason I'm asking for anybody who doesn't have context, as I break the third wall and interview Trent Bryson on his own show, Trent is somebody that has achieved a tremendous amount. I'm here on your fifth floor high-rise office overlooking all of Long Beach. I'm in the middle of a super cool company that's managing tons of assets and helping thousands, tens of thousands of customers all over the U.S. And here you are doing a podcast while you're running a company. And while you're running a company and doing a podcast, you're training for your umpteenth marathon that you're going to run in Berlin that's super challenging. And you continue to take on optional challenges. You continue to keep going in categories that you could say, I already ran a marathon. I'm not going to run anymore. Or 
I already built a great company. I'm not opening up an office in Florida. I'm not opening up an office in New York. Why do you keep going? What, what is it in you that every morning you get up and say, I'm still going to take on more? Um, probably goes back a little bit to my childhood. Um, I would say to be a little bit vulnerable here. You know, I, I had a dad that cared if I played football, and that was it. He didn't come to my soccer games or running. And I'm not complaining about that as I look back. I'm not here to say my dad was a bad dad. That was the, the part they were in. Now dads are at every soccer practice, let alone games. Um, so there's probably a, a desire to be approve a him. Um, I think that I was the smallest kid in school, 5'0", 98 pounds, freshman year of high school, 5'2", um, 105 pounds sophomore year. I couldn't have played on the football team. I didn't even make the weight to, to be on the football team. <clears throat> Junior year, I grew and, and things started to change for me. But I think that there's, there's certain parts to my childhood that weren't perfect that I was exposed to that gave me like a, a chip on my shoulder, if you will. Um, and I think that that has, has stayed with me all the way through. Um, and then the second part of it, I think I've been very lucky in the fact that I've just listened to mentors talk about being in a room with people that are smarter than you, better than you at things. So when I talk about running and I get on a chat, I'm talking with you know, Brad Hauser, who's a former Olympian, Michael Stanbury is a former, uh, former Olympian, Josh Muxon, who just broke the 10 mile American record. John Clemens is my coach who's, you know, a naval officer. So I'm surrounded by guys that are better than me. Um, when I talk business with my YPO group, it's guys that have bigger companies than me or have accomplished more. And so, you know, they say if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Um, I also have a lot of great friends that aren't super duper accomplished, but I, I think I try to put myself in environments where I'm going to learn and I'm going to grow. Um, and I also am big on not giving myself excuses. Like, it's so easy to give yourself an excuse in life. Um, but ultimately, like, why? I, I want, I, I like winning. I like doing these things. I like being a good example for my kids. Um, and that would probably be the third is, is the best way to, for my kids to be successful, successful is to see me being healthy doing the right things to be successful and placing the right importance in front of them. So my own accountability to my kids is, am I present for them? Do I support them? Am I present to my business? Do I support my employees? Am I present in my relationships? Do I support them? And then what are my friendships like? Um, and I th I'm really blessed in the fact that I have all those things, but I work at it. I, I, I check in with people I haven't talked to in a while, one, because I care, but I also, I work on keeping those relationships. It's really easy to just say, like, I'm going to go with my three friends and I'm not going to worry about anything. I also think we get screwed enough in life that there's times where we go, like, no good deed goes unpunished. Let's let's bring in the circle. But um, I think that's that's probably a very long answer. I think some of it comes with the chip on the shoulder from being little. And, and I moved from Long Beach to Newport, and all of a sudden I went from, like, you know, an environment where I was, yeah, I thought my dad was successful, to I was was the broke kid in town like you know and my stepdad was a fireman and my mom because they almost went through bankruptcy had to go learn how to be a realtor like it was literally i remember that desperate time where she's like i'm gonna go learn how to be a realtor and take an exam and and, and he's almost retired as a fireman so those those times those are 
and my mom's a, a force too, so I've learned so much from her. So I think that those, those hardships make, make you stronger. And um, I just saw an interview, not that I'm the hugest Jordan Peterson fan, but he has great sound bites. And he talked about, we try to hide today's society from scars or from, from tough things, but the greatest thing you can do is give exposure, fight through it, and then move on to the next step. Is like not allowing my kids to fail it would be a failure by me. They need to fail and they need to learn how to grow from it and they need to go on. So that's that's my own thing. So. No, I absolutely love it. And and I think what's so interesting about your journey, my journey, all the guys that we know that are quote unquote successful is success is the only thing in life that you won't know the price of until after you've paid it. Yeah. You can only decide to purchase it, not knowing what it's going to cost you. And at some point you'll find out what it costs, but you won't know it until afterwards. And I think that's what so many people, it stops them from risking it because you're essentially leaning into an abyss that you have no idea how long, how much, how difficult. So you really got to want it if you're willing to engage in all of that uncertainty. But I, I love that you're still challenging yourself every day. It's something I've always admired about you. You know, we just got back from Ireland and I'm sitting here, you know, having my pint of Guinness at 11 a.m. And Trent's like, yeah, man, I got to go run 22 miles. And I'm like... I don't know how many pints of Guinness I'll be on by the time you get back, but man, I'm so jealous that you're going to go for a run, but I'm still going to sit here in this chair and have this Guinness. I was far more jealous than you having Guinness, that's for sure. Uh, thanks for spending time with me today. Um, you were like a commercial for me at the end there. That was nice. Um, and uh, like I said, I really appreciate you spending time today and, and thank you. Hey, my absolute pleasure. The best we can do is give back and share all these anecdotes so that who's ever listening might take the shot they might not have taken. Perfect.